Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Simon Moore, speaks to one of the important figures who make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice. The following conversation was first broadcast in April 2021. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. This is In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a doyen of the opera world. Geoffrey Chard was part of the inaugural production of the Australian Elizabethan Trust Opera Company, the forerunner to Opera Australia, back in 1956. And let's just say he never looked back, performing regularly with the Royal Opera Company at Covent Garden, the English National Opera, as well as, of course, Opera Australia. And late last year, he celebrated his 90th birthday. Geoffrey Chard, a very warm welcome back to Fine Music Sydney. Thank you, Simon. I feel there's so much to talk about, but let's start with that first production in 1956 of the Elizabethan Trust Opera Company, which, of course, is now Opera Australia. Were you aware at the time that it was the beginning of an organisation that would last through the years? Yes, I think so. Um, The problem was that uh, the demise of uh, the National Opera of New South Wales had just, that that had closed in about 1955. So the next step was uh, to go in 1956, associated with the uh, Olympic Games. And there was a festival down there and we were the the operatic, we did the four Mozart operas and there there was lots of... uh, detail to be said about that, um, but uh, perhaps um, modesty uh, pre- pre- prevents me. From <laughs> oh, no, please. <laughs> <laughs> but what, so what was it like as a company in those days? I mean, well, it was wonderful. We were all um, hopeful performers and um, prospects of the future were, were, were small. Uh, you just had to go abroad if you, if you were going to do mm-hmm. anything uh, in the way of an operatic uh, career. Um, uh, there, w- there had been the National Theatre Movement in Melbourne, Gertrude Johnson's and Clarice Lorenz's National Opera Company of New South Wales. And incidentally, I only noticed this morning that it's 2021 and the first season was 1951. So this is the 70th anniversary of the very start. You know, we, we, were, the, we were the people who started opera office, in other words. We were the vanguard of, of performers and, well... Um, we we just thought it was a, a short life and a gay one, really. It wasn't going to last very long. But we did do wonderful things with that company, and some of us had hundreds of performances. Toured New Zealand. Um, I was the Figaro of the day, and um, lots of bohème performances. Even sang my first Rigoletto. Um, and really, uh, it, it was a marvellous um, grounds for preparing for, the, uh, mm. for our future. And... Uh, you couldn't have got that anywhere else. But how were you able to measure your own um, performances? Well, one didn't uh, know whether one could cope. For example, at, at the age of 23 or 24, singing Rigoletto was, was unheard of. And uh, yeah. there were, uh, when I was at the Conservatorium, <clears throat> Goosens cast me as Iago in Otello. And um, I would have been 19 or 20. I, he said, well, you're the youngest Iago of all time. That, that was amazing, and it just was um, fed, fed us with uh, 
uh, more and more desire to, mm. to do more if the chance is. So you seize the opportunity, really. Yeah, you, you were saying how young sort of everybody was. Is that because anyone of an age older than you at the time, if they were going to make something out of opera, they, they had already gone, they'd already left the country? I think that every baritone in Sydney wanted to sing Iago at that time. <laughs> and Goosen's walking down the corridor one day, said, Chard, uh, um, have you ever thought of being a tenor? I said, no, sir, I'm... Have too much trouble singing the baritone top notes, and uh, he said, "How would you like to sing Iago at the end of the year?" Well, did I? What? My gosh! I mean, what a what a chance to do something as wonderful as that. And um, whether one was vocally equipped, one had natural singing ability, a natural voice, and people said it was good. But um, you know, singing with the amateur musical societies, uh, things uh, at the conservatorium. Wonderful groundwork, wonderful experience, facing everything you could, light music, the variety that you did. In that first season, uh, in 1951, a number of stars were born, including June Bronhill, who then uh, went abroad and had an international success. Well, let's have a little bit of music. Now, your first choice for today is uh, a little bit of Rachmaninoff. Vocalies with Rene Fleming. Can you tell us why you've uh, wanted us to hear this? One learns eventually through uh, experience, teaching. Um, one wants to um, hear the voice being um, granted uh, an even line. And she has the most beautiful sounding voice. And as Fisher Disco once said, legato, legato, legato. And that's what we hear when we hear this, this syrup that comes from her voice.
Renee Fleming with a rendition, a lovely rendition there, of Rachmaninoff's vocalese. The choice of my guest in conversation today, the opera singer, with 70 years' experience, we were just, uh, I think, saying, Jeffrey. Yeah, I think I was singing for 60 years. <laughs> 60, 60. Well, you still haven't stopped, I imagine. <laughs> Jeffrey Shard, and thank you so much for joining me today on Fine Music Sydney. I'd like to go right back to the beginning now. Did you come from a musical family? Uh, no, although in those days, and I was born in 1930, in those 30s, people sang around the piano a lot, and it was that was the, the form of... Uh, of, of light entertainment, and um, one was uh, urged to, to sing, but mainly uh, when uh, the springboard was singing in the choir at church, mm. the local church in in uh, Hurstville Grove, and um, sang um, all the hymns and so on. And somebody asked me to sing at their wedding, and I, I liked the feeling, learned a few songs to sing around the place. Um, and then was introduced to amateur musical societies in Rockdale, of which there was a wealth. There were three or four companies. Mm. And, uh, so what the choice? Well, yes. Um, one was headhunted, in fact. Oh. <laughs> Just the, that's, that's always a good feeling. Another leading man, you know. <laughs> um, yes, I sang Victoria and her Hussar, the, the Hussar, and, uh, of course, the Red Shadow in the Desert song, Robert in New Moon, and then... At, in, in that area, was, we, we had the uh, occasion of a small opera company being created. Mm. And Rockdale Opera has since gone on very strongly. But at that time, we did a performance of Bohème, which was measured as being, you know, the watershed of, of, of future performances. We were a young cast. Mm. And having tasted that... I a thought, young amateur cast as well. Yes, or, mm. well, semi-professional. We all mm. sang around the, the bowling clubs and the golf clubs and sing, uh, there were smokos and things like that where mm. one sang. Uh, but one learns one's craft in doing all those things. I used to sing on the showboat for uh, on, on uh, Saturdays and Sunday nights mm. and uh, you built up a repertoire and an ability to... Entertain, really, I suppose. Mm. But that was all wonderfully familiar because I always regarded myself as um, uh, an acting singer rather than a singing actor. And the importance of the uh, histrionics was, was important to me and to get the text over. To, you know, after all, you're telling a story and uh, it was always important to me to, uh, to develop that. So from that area and that period at the con... Uh, one had the, the the balance to go to uh, the first season in 1951, and I sang a small role in Carmen Don Cairo, one of the smugglers. I think Lindsay Brown, the, uh, the the doyen of critics at the time, said uh, we were like comedians from a fourth form pageant. <laughs> <laughs> Is that good? Or? No, I don't think it was very good at all. It's a kind of good, but you you know seeing the bowling clubs and and all that stuff before that gig is effectively the first paid opera role. Would that be yes. the right way of, of looking at it? Were you able to make enough uh, until that point to to for it to be an actual career oh, no. singing? Or this Never. was just effectively pocket money singing at the bolos and singing at weddings and so and on. And so on. On. that was a big feature. No, I was a, I was a, an accountant. Uh, we you didn't give up your day job as they no. say. Mm. Uh, and I was, this was mainly for love. Company, company secretary with a small company in Sydney, and uh, eventually, uh, in uh, 1953, I was offered these roles: these the barbarous Bill Figaro and uh, Boheme and one or two others. 
command performance for the Queen and then the tour of New Zealand. So I, I left my, my job and my um, managing director was astonished. He said, you, 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 you go mad, you know, you'll, you'll have a great future here. And as you see that man down there on the corner, he's an out-of-work actor. That's how you'll end up. <laughs> but I said, well, I have to go and get this out of my system. But uh, no, that was a, a, a very interesting period. And uh, when, the, when the company had d done its dash and we went to uh, the Elizabethan Trust and did those four Mozart operas, um, I was fortunate to marry the beautiful soprano Marjorie Connolly. And we both had uh, the joy of uh, sort of a honeymoon trip of, uh, of singing major roles with the company all around Australia mm. at that time. And that was wonderful. After that, um, when she became pregnant, we left the company for a period. And on a concert tour in Queensland um, in 1959, a mobile, it was part of the centenary celebrations, mm. um, Marjorie had a cerebral hemorrhage and died, which was, uh, well, I just wasn't emotionally equipped to handle no. that with a two-and-a-half-year-old child to look after. And um, so after a period, I thought, I'll have to have a go. And the springboard for that was to go abroad. Well, let's have a little bit more music now. You've selected a Schubert impromptu. Why have you selected this piece? Oh, well, anything by Schubert is wonderful. <laughs> I, you, you, you're spoiled for choice, aren't you? And um, I just love this piano piece. It's, uh, let me say, I, I'd, I'd quite like it played at my funeral. So that's how much I like the piece. So. In another 30 years. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. <laughs>
Schubert's gorgeous impromptu number three in G-flat, the choice of opera singer Geoffrey Chard, who is my guest in conversation today. Let's go back to what you were saying before about going over to London with your young child as a single parent at the time. Now, many Australians go to London, or at least overseas at least, and it's uh, certainly a rite of passage. But uh, when you did it in 1961, it was uh, much more significant than that. Um, what did drive you to go over with your with your young son? Well, after two years of living back with my parents, I needed the help to, to bring up David. Mm. Um, I felt I couldn't stay under my father's roof any longer, and, well, I might as well go away and have a go. So I took a year overseas to see what happened, and to my surprise, I had a, a lot of success, television series, Lots of concerts, singing with the Welsh National Opera Company, and uh, I thought it was worth pursuing it. So I came back to Australia and did a season with the uh, uh, Opera Australia. Um, that was in 1962, sang Don Giovanni, Germont in Traviata, mm. Alecchino in... So, uh, so you only went for a year, then came back I came quickly. back for the year mm. to collect David, actually. Ah, so the first year was yeah. solo. Right. I went away to try it, toe in the water. Mm. And... Uh, Picked up David and did that year's uh, season all around Australia. Well, then that's when I found out what I was facing. I mean, mm. getting on the ship and having to <clears throat> take him to uh, a breakfast break. Then I'd have the second sitting. Same with with lunch. Same with the. Uh, it was nonstop, and I thought, gee whiz, I've I've taken on a handful here. Mm. And then getting over there and finding that uh, to get digs where you could get some assistance from somebody to keep an eye on him while you pursued a career, well, it didn't happen easily. I had three years of, of difficulty, did a lot of work, but uh, I was limited by the fact that I wanted to be there in the morning and in the evening when, with, the, with the sun. So um, it wasn't until I found a, a perfect solution, an elderly lady who... Uh, had been bereaved and who could give a motherly uh, care to a young boy while I went off and did what I wanted to do. Uh, that solved the, the situation and my career took off from there. Did she live with you as a sort of nanny? Or yes, she... We, she, she ran a sort of boarding house and mm. we, we lived there for all that time. It allowed me, first of all, to, to go to Hungary to sing a, a festival there in Szeged. That, mm. was, that was a very interesting experience. It was the time when the, the country was still repressed. Mm. Um, they, you know, in 1956 when there was a, an uprising in Hungary and all the Hungarian athletes who were out here for the um, Olympic Games were expecting America or somebody to go to their aid. But the Russian tanks rolled in and just crushed them. Mm. And that was still the state when we went there and we saw, we witnessed what life was like under that sort of situation. And it was quite interesting. A couple had come back from America and got stranded there. They were stuck and uh, often wondered what happened to them uh, after mm -hmm. that. But that was a, an exciting time. Um, we, we took West Side Story on the, on the, in the guise that um, it was Romeo and Juliet. Mm. And uh, they got the shock of their life there. I when, think so. Were when, you allowed to do the, all the performances? Or? <laughs> yeah. And um, Bill Reed had to teach the orchestra the style of music. And yeah. 
One of the things about it was that the temperature was so high that we couldn't rehearse in, in, in the daytime. Um, we had to sort of do it early or, or late. And, um, well, doing the rumble and the fight mm. and that sort of thing was, was, was terribly hot. The, uh, it was about a 15,000 uh, capacity uh, set up in front of the huge cathedral, so on the bend of a river. And um, that was a wonderful experience, you know, to, to have that period behind the, the Iron Curtain. Can I just go back to when you were talking about those three years in London where you were struggling for support, caring for your young son as a single father. It's the kind of situation that today, I mean, many people struggle uh, as a single parent, obviously, but uh, in the early 60s, that was quite unusual, uh, especially working in, well, working in any field, but certainly in the entertainment industry. Did you encounter much discrimination from people who might have offered you work saying, I, I can't possibly give you this role or I can't possibly give you this gig because you've got this... No, Child I think some people uh, were, were aware of my problems. And um, the thing was that one of my colleagues had offered me some help and Neil Easton's wife, Doreen. Um, but when we got back to that 1962 terrible winter, it was uh, a landmark. It's one of the worst winters. Snow lay not around until about May. And... Um, David uh, had to be chucked out in the snow and off to school and got by. And I thought I would have the help of those people. But Doreen was pregnant and had twins, and so she she had a handful, so I had to move out and go to other digs, none of which ever turned out to be satisfactory until mm. I found this other elderly lady some years later. So it was, it was really about finding accommodation which offered a, a support person effectively. Yes, yeah. and somebody that mm. would keep an eye on him if I had to dash off and do a recording. And uh, no, it was it was uh, quite unique. And some people said, oh, we watched you at that time and we, we thought it was amazing how you managed. Yeah. And, uh, was there ever any consideration, if I may ask, because it would have been quite common at the time to have left him in Australia even, I know you left him for that first year, but then leave him with your parents? No. I, I felt he'd lost his mother and he wasn't going to lose a father as well. Mm. I was going to be there. And people said back. to me, you know, that boy will be an absolute disaster from the way you were. He changed six changes of address and school and all that sort of thing. Mm. And uh, I said to him recently, did you uh, feel that you, were, you suffered in this? He said, no, no, that's the way the cars were dealt. And he, he just it was accepted just normal life. Turned out a great chap. Fantastic. So what about any other difficulty with um, a young colonial, if I can put it that way, getting uh, work in London in the 60s, uh, especially in a, in a relatively snobbish uh, field such as opera? Well, yes, it was the, cap the musical capital of the world. Mm. And, uh, you know, the one had to uh, learn rapidly. I did a lot of concerts in Wales. Um, somebody rang up and said, well, can you do the Dvorak Starbuck Martyr on Friday? Yes, you do. And you <laughs> yes. go and learn it. And, and it it's, takes a long time to build up uh, your, your presence there. Mm. You know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. You might have a success of some sort. But to get continuous work mm. to maintain and make a living, it takes a lot of time and, and a lot of uh, uh, mm. difficult um, negotiation. I had an agent who was, who was helpful. And uh, look, I sang for years through Ireland, 
and in Wales. Um, every year in Ireland at um, the uh, Christmas season uh, in Dublin, sang at the opening of the Cork Opera House, Belfast concerts, other places like Waterford, Limerick, Kilrush, and did all that sort of singing in, in, in Ireland. And th those were uh, fascinating times. And also, with singing in Wales, all these little choral societies do these oratorios and so on, I was able to repair in a, something that was missing in my career, um, the concert works, the, the oratorios, the many... Uh, works that uh, one wouldn't have got a chance to do at other times and uh, mm. never said no. Saying, couldn't say no to a Verdi Requiem. Was, I wasn't a bass, but I wasn't going to miss singing that. That's <laughs> such a wonderful piece to do. <laughs> and all those concerts down there were great. No, I think I had a, a good connection with the people of Wales and they were good to me. You ended up as a principal at the English National Opera. Did you feel like all your Christmases had come at once? Well, that's what I've been aiming at ever since I went away, and it, it was delayed for a long time until Charlie McCarris took over there, and I just sung Don Giovanni for the Glyndebourne Touring Company, and um, he wanted a Don Giovanni for the, his opening seasons, and he said, you must get Jeff Chard. So that was the start of it, and uh, I had... Um, 15 years there, sang the Toreador eternally uh, for that 15 years. Um, well, that's an interesting question, actually, because being a, a principal at, at an opera company for 15 years, you are going to be singing a lot of the same parts uh, many times. Did that become a drag or did you, were you able to find something new each time that role came back? Well, uh, the Toreador is a... Um, the deathbed for a lot of singers. A lot of people have tried to do it and, and uh, fail. And, and I suppose I can still get into the costume now and uh, <laughs> I, I got away with it. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful production and John Copley's production, he said this will be in the, in the repertoire for years and it was and I sang the part all those times. Mm. But no, the same with Don Giovanni. I, I sang that every time it was produced. Germont in Traviata... But the the thing that was um, probably I'm remembered for over there were the the contemporary works, mm. uh, singing at the Alderborough Festival, Edinburgh Festival, and the works at um, the, the the Coliseum, um, the Devils of Luda, for example. Mm. Uh, that was an interesting piece. Um, John Dexter was the uh, director from uh, the Shakespeare Company. And uh, the critics said that Josephine Barstow and I had made the greatest contribution to to opera in living memory when we when we did that piece. Mm. And um, I was um, tortured terribly on stage, fingernails, everything pulled out, then legs crushed, and then burnt at the stake. Mm. And um, Dexter said to me, "Look, I want to." Uh, underline the lascivious quality of this priest who is is going to be uh, tortured like this. And uh, would you mind having some photographs taken with a nude model? I said, oh, no, no. Okay. You thought about it for 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so one cold November day up in the rehearsal studios, <laughs> <it> was cold. <laughs> this young girl came in with a coat over and looked very, very embarrassed and nervous. And they took photographs of us in all sorts of positions and uh, <laughs> said... Uh, 
I said, is this, is this girl a professional model? And said, no, no, it's the photographer's girlfriend. Oh, dear. Who's picking up the hundred of quid. <laughs> no wonder she was. <laughs> Terrible. Now, we have not yet heard a piece today sung by you, and you've brought in a, a rather unique recording for us to play. Can you tell us about what we're about to hear? Well, I, <laughs> I have lots of things I'd love to play for you, <laughs> but this is extraordinary in that I was only a week or so ago doing some exercises to um, Feldenkrais tape, and you're lying on the floor pulling your legs up and so on, and um, suddenly my voice appeared, and I thought, what, what is this? And it, I, I, it played just an ordinary ballad that one sang on the BBC from time to time. It was on a program with um, the great performer, Harry Seacombe. And we joked and laughed. And this is the sort of thing that one would have sung. And I thought, well, how can that be there? I can only assume that I was doing the exercises in London, listening to the radio, and they announced that I was going to sing something. And so I just grabbed the tape and stuck it down and recorded it. And this is what it was. Fancy that's the Queen's home, wonder if the Queen's home, ask him if the Queen's home, oh ask the fella yourself. The Queen's away at Windsor, Sir or Sandringham I fear, but where she is they're changing guard the very same as here, by which I mean at Buckingham Palace where you will see the changing of the guard, stand maybe within the palace yard or swell the crowd around the gates that daily comes to contemplate the celebrate the changing of the god observe the style while the army drum supplies a regular beat to manly tramp of marching feet, behold, behold the changing of the guard. Revolution! Absolutely spectacular stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Geoffrey Chard, uh, my guest in conversation today. Well, that was his choice, and that was his voice that we heard in The Changing of the Guard. It is a great one, isn't it, Geoffrey? Well, it's the sort of thing that um, it's out of fashion now, but one sang regularly on a program called Friday Night is Music Night with the main orchestra over there, concert orchestra, and... um, those you would sing everything from musical comedy to opera to um, big ensembles, uh, and those um, ballads. Um, there was a, a way of doing them, and I think it's been lost today. That when I listen to singing on the radio, and I, I'm appalled at the the lack of uh, intonation, the lack of line, and, and I despair really. Uh, the the wealth of of uh, talent in in singing is somehow been lost, right? and 
the, the occasions when in the past somebody would accost you and talk about recordings of a particular piece, mm. one recording of this, one recording of that. They, 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 don't, they don't happen, I don't think, anyway, not to me. But that thing that you were talking about, you know, people stopping you talking about this recording and that recording, especially, you know, by the time you're at the English National Opera for, for all those years, you're a very established figure um, in the scene over there, you're recognised. How does that sort of fame and fortune affect your life? Not at all. Mm-hmm. You don't make any money as a singer. Good fortune. Sorry, I meant uh, not monetary fortune. No, but... but you don't. And You're under contract and you mm-hmm. do as you're told. I started on 50 pounds a week. The only thing that that did, it allowed me to get a mortgage and buy a house. Mm. And, um, Regular work, yeah. So, you know, one did formal things like that. And um, sometimes one had to um, fight the climate. You know, really cold, freezing, icy conditions, um, driving through it to a concert and getting back for another one uh, there. And one evening <clears throat> I was coming home in cold, freezing conditions. Our house was in Regal Way in uh, Harrow and on the bend of a, of a, of a corner. And um, as I uh, came round the corner down my street, it was very slippery, with a lot of ice. There was a woman, elderly woman, just sitting on the fence I said, are you all right? She said, uh, well, no, I'm frightened of slipping. I said, well, grab hold of me and I'll see you down to my place down the corner. <clears throat> it was just three or four stops. And when we got down there, she said, uh, uh, where do you live? I said, I-, I live in there, ready to depart. She said, oh, she said, that's where the singer lives. <laughs> oh, I said, well, yes, that's right. She said, pause, great political remark. You know, your father's a lovely singer. So I had to take oh. her home, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Always the gentleman. <laughs> well, you returned to Australia in 1981 after that uh, stint with the English National Opera. Opera. What, what made you return? Well, uh, David had now become uh, work. I said to him, he was an academic, you want to work for a big organisation that will look after you. Mm. Um, so we got him into the bank and uh, in, in the Westpac Bank in London. And uh, eventually he always wanted to come back to Australia. And they transferred him and he came back. Um, I'd since married and uh, the time had come. I thought my father was still alive and he was out here. I thought it was time for me to come back. As my agent out here, Jennifer Eddy, said, look, if you're coming back, you must come back while you're still in, in robust form mm. uh, to re-establish yourself. So that's that was the move. I, I thought for a time that I'd be able to sing um, there for six months and six months out here. And with that in mind, I went back to sing Tristan and Isolde and Cosi Fantotti at the end of the year. And um, it uh, it just doesn't, it ends up it doesn't fit. There, there's always a conflict. And I'd formed a very good relationship with the Victoria State Opera, mm. and I did an awful lot of wonderful singing down there. And uh, although I was always worried that I wasn't going to uh, re-establish myself in Australia, in the end, um, you know, it's a vast country, Australia. And to travel over to Perth to sing something for the ABC um, involved a five-hour trip. And uh, to become known internationally or nationally in Australia... Um, you needed to be on a television show, a, a big television show. And uh, so uh, I, I was very 
glad that eventually, um, because com- com- companies um, have to book a certain period ahead, mm. that it took some time to get back with the my own company, the company, the uh, Opera Australia, and that was the result of being cast in the most important feature of that time was to sing the role of Voss in uh, Richard Mille's opera, um, which had been, well, I think it's the main uh, opera of an Australian content Mm. so far. And um, that that was a a magical experience. And so um, life took on a different... um, Level then, and uh, just going back to Voss, if I may. Sorry, because you, you, you mentioned before you became quite well known for the contemporary roles, and Voss being a sort of a contemporary role. Is that partly because you think you preferred performing those roles? That I preferred music? them because of the dramatic quality. They were written to great plays. The uh, The Devils of Ludown was the The, the Devils was a a, a, a marvelous play. The Royal Hunt of the Sun was another Schaefer wonderful play, and the characterization of the the main protagonist was uh, uh, very important to me uh, to the challenge of, of the acting role and, and and bringing that to life so um look it, it was uh, it seemed to me when i was doing uh, the last one was um a piece by Leggetti called uh, the grand macabre and i said oh god i, I can't can't go down the mine another time. It's it's such a difficult piece. It's so difficult to do. I was working on it <clears throat> with the conductor, and I said, "Look, I, I think I think I I think you better get somebody else." And Harvard said to me, "Jeff, you're the only one that can learn the notes." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was flattered <clears throat> and and did that. But uh, look, um, it was principally the the histrionics of the role that I found uh, so challenging. And um, you can't go on singing Traviata and Boheme and those things forever and ever, no. but they, they, they're part of the regular repertoire. So things by Shostakovich, The Nose, was a, another terribly difficult piece to do. I could list a lot of them. I've just got a list of c- composers here. Yes. Ligeti, Stravinsky, Hinastera. I met Hinastera. I mean, people are astonished that you could have met one of those composers. He came over for his opera. At, wow. Yeah. Uh, having been away and coming back to Australia for these roles now, was there much of a contrast between the way things were done in the two countries? No, because the Australian opera brought out um, outstanding directors. John Copley, I think, was off out here. And the productions were sometimes uh, in partnership with a, with with another opera company. <clears throat> no, the, the quality that I've seen there, particularly of late, is very high. The mm. the, the the standard is, is is really international now. The the, the singing, and uh, <clears throat> although a lot of imported artists come out here, and I think that's disappointing for the local people. It's rather sad that uh, the most you could hope for would be perhaps to get into the chorus of the Australian opera unless you were particularly uh, remarkable and went away and got those credits. That was what we were told to do in the old days, to go away and make a name for yourself. But it didn't always result in you being given extra work.
Well, time for one more piece of music before we run out of time. Uh, you've got uh, a little bit of Chabrier here. Why have we chosen this one? I just love his music. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, the uh, the uh, recording I have, I play often, and uh, there's uh, not, not only this happy piece of music, I mm. think my wife says it's great to make the bed with, to, to, do this, to this music. <laughs> <laughs> music to make the bed, too. Well, let's have a listen. Française from Chabrier, the choice of my guest in conversation today, the opera singer Jeff Chard, who is uh, just turned 90. And gosh, I, I hope I'm as sharp as this one. I'm 90. <laughs> You're only 50. I mean, this me. <laughs> You're nice. Uh, look, um, the, uh, the things in my life that shaped what I did seem to be providential, but... <clears throat> In that interlude, which is very difficult, when I went back to live with my parents, I was doing a lot of television here <clears throat> for the ABC, uh, Jim Upshaw's Make My Music, and we used to do songs in an entirely different uh, face to what they would normally be. And then um, that show became the Lorraine Desmond Show, and uh, Lorraine was a beautiful woman, and uh, she... Uh, she, she uh, on the eve of my going back to England, they asked me to stay on and do an extra show. And I was singing uh, the Stock Riders song by Bill James. They had superimposed cattle over me. And I said to her, look, a way of saying goodbye to me, we would copy this ad of um, Chips Rafferty. Chips Rafferty um, was an archetypical Australian. And this was the ad, which I, we, I, we all laughed about. The camera zooms over these ca cast iron sheds and says, Marble Bar, hottest place in Australia. So in comes Chips on a horse and he says, She's hot, mate. Must be 120 degrees out there. But we'll soon fix that with a cool drink. And he goes up onto this veranda and there's a big refrigerator there and he says, 
drinks it. He says, there's no doubt about these Pope refrigerators. A beauty. So I said, let's see if we can do something with that. So I'm on the fence singing, with, singing the stock riders, and um, Lorraine came on, Decolleté and so on, and she, she, I said, she's hot out there, must be 120 degrees. And she said, yeah, but we'll soon fix that with a cool drink. And she hands me a beer, and I leer into the camera and say, there's no doubt about this, Lorraine Desmond, a beauty. <laughs> and... I thought the boys in the band were going to fall off their chairs. But um, that probably was one of the first times that an advertisement had been lampooned. Yeah. Because the next day I was on, on a flight and away to get to London and receive an, an official note from the ABC saying that. <gasps> I thought, oh, crikey, what have we done here? And it said um, that uh, would I give permission for Sir Samuel Pope to have a 16-millimeter copy of this advertisement that had been <laughs> lampooned. And uh, I wrote back quickly and said, yes, <laughs> I, I want no further trouble. Goodness me. So what do you think is your favourite role in your career? Well, I sang Don Giovanni lots of times, and I, every, every time it was, it was uh, a challenge, particularly at Glyndebourne, where the, the uh, Italian coaching was so uh, really tight. But, um, look, I always enjoyed singing Scarpia, and... Scarpia in Tosco's was a wonderful role to, to, to play. I suppose you really enjoy villains. Um, Rake's Progress is another. Mm. The, the, the devil in that was was a, was a role I loved. But some roles came to me that had escaped in the uh, over there. Uh, Onyegin, Eugene Onyegin, mm -hmm. I liked. I sang Mephistopheles and Faust out here. I, I think uh, there were roles. That, that came to me out here um, with the Australian opera, which I never thought would. Um, look, I must have sung 150 major roles. Um, the other repertoire that I also fit in at the time would make it pretty difficult for someone to duplicate that today. Mm. Um, there may be other people that will have eclipsed what I've done quite easily, but the variety of the repertoire that I had was astonishing. And, of course, I never thought I'd ever retire. I thought I'd just go on and I was teaching and I was uh, adjudicating. I was president of the Savage Club and I was uh, um, connected um, with the Australian Music Association. I'd taught at the Royal Academy in London and uh, it seemed as though the cup was full. And I was on a holiday up to uh, the north coast at Don Hazelwood's place which is on a sort of hill overlooking Bluey's Beach. And um, I was wanting to move on quickly. My wife and my sister were inside cleaning up. And I just pushed the car out on what I thought was a level uh, walk. On the other side of the road was a ravine. And um, I went to close the door and the car started to move away towards the road. Mm -hmm. And I rushed to pull the, put the brake on or put it into gear. It went with a whoosh. I went underneath the, the door Ooh. and um, I was laying on the ground there, not sure what was going to happen. Anyway, the outcome was that I'd broken my neck and uh, I had other rib injuries. So um, I, I, I eventually think that I was extremely lucky to survive mm -hmm. that. I was flown to Sydney down to the Royal yeah. North Shore and wonderful doctor <clears throat> said 
I'm going to operate on that. There's a vertebrae sticking out here, and he put it back together again. And, um, you know, there were other people that that were surrounded by people that were on their back for the rest of their lives. Mm. So for me, that that was another one of those things, a little escape from drama. And uh, uh, so that perhaps... When was that, sorry? 2000. 2000, right. And... um, well, I couldn't serve so well at tennis anymore after mm, that. And, I imagine uh, not. Golf was a bit of a problem. I'm in the process of uh, trying to clear out. I've got a room full of music and and programs and all sorts of stuff, and I'm pretty well towards the end of writing a book about the whole history. Whether anybody wow. would be interested in that, I don't know. But it, it's... Um, uh, well, as I said, a talent to amuse, that's that's what one had as well as... I always wanted to be taken seriously as a, as a really classical singer as a, as a, and sing. People say, do you miss all that? I miss work singing at that level and that quality with the top-level musicians and big orchestras and, and works of, of, of account. Uh, Malcolm Williamson wrote his Massive Christ the King, and I was written for me for, to do that. And two other operas of his, um, Lucky Peter's Journey and The, the Growing Castle, um, he wrote at that time when I was connected with him, Master of the Queen's Music, of course. And um, there was one occasion worth mentioning, and that was um, the Carmen production when it was new was was rather a sensation, and we were invited to go to Buckingham Palace and, um, uh, and Howard and David Hughes and myself, and we sang to a, a gathering of ex-soldiers. And um, so you can say, well, I've sang at Buckingham Palace, you know, and uh, went to Nigeria and played tennis with the consul over there and found he was a, um, a top man in the, in the, in the veterans and uh, he invited me to, to play out at um, Wimbley, Wimbledon with him. And so, uh, yes, I said I would do that. And um, I'd played a bit of tennis with Ken Rosewell when I was into district in the old days. <laughs> and um, so uh, I can say I played at Wimbledon. Wimbledon as well. <laughs> well, Geoffrey <laughs> Chad, I feel that we could talk all day. But unfortunately, we've come to the end of the program. Thanks so much for being in conversation Great with me pleasure, today. Great Simon. I guess... I'm delighted to have been able to help find music who we support and admire for what you're doing here in support of classical music, which is so important to us. Thank you so much. Opera singer Geoffrey Chard, 90 years young. Goodness me. That's In Conversation for today. A reminder that you can now get this program as a podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or from wherever you download your podcasts. And you can catch up on previous editions of the program there as well. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on Fine Music Sydney. Thanks for listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Simon Moore and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation. <laughs>